0: Well, good evening. Let's talk about what we're here to discuss, and that is uh, the art of conversational persuasion. Uh, In fact, many years ago, before I worked as a speaker for Stand to Reason, I worked as a physical therapist in East Los Angeles. And uh, if you know anything about Los Angeles, you probably know that LA is a very ethnically diverse city. So people from all over the world travel to LA to live and to work there, and so one of my coworkers, who was also a physical therapist, was from uh, from India. And one day while we were working, he said, "Alan, can I invite you out to lunch?" And I said, "Sure, let's go out to lunch." So we're we're in East LA, we're eating fish tacos, and my friend Raj, who's my coworker, he proceeds to tell me the news. I said, "Well, what is it, Raj?" He goes, "Alan, I'm going to be getting married." And I'm like, oh, hey, congratulations, Raj. I'm so excited for you. And so I asked my friend Raj a question. I said, Raj, um, are you going to have a, um, or an American-themed wedding? Or are you going to have more of like a, a Hindu-themed wedding? He said, oh, I'm going to have a Hindu-themed wedding. And I'm like, oh, cool. So I asked him another question. I said, Raj, is Hinduism something that's important to you? And he said, yeah, Hinduism is important to me. I said, cool. So I asked him another question. I said, Raj, do you believe Hinduism is true? And he thought about it for just a moment, and he goes, yeah, I think Hinduism's true. I said, cool. So I asked him another question. I said, Raj, do you believe all religions are true? Like, not just Hinduism, but Buddhism, and Islam, and Christianity, and Judaism, and so on and so forth. And he thought about it for a little bit longer, and finally he said, yeah, I think pretty much all religions are basically the same. Now, at this point of the conversation, I came to realize my friend Raj is what we would call a religious pluralist. Now, obviously, that's not the term he used, but that's just a reference to the kind of person who thinks all religions are true, you can't say any one religion is more true than another, or any one religion is more false than another. Now, as a follower of Jesus Christ, obviously those are not my convictions, and so I really wanted to consider, you know, or, or have my friend consider maybe abandoning that view. I, I, I wanted him to think that that's just not possible. And so I asked him one final question. I said, Raj, what would you think about a religion that believes that there is a God who is not spiritual but physical in nature? And this God is the size of a football field. This God hovers on the far side of the moon, so you can't ever see this God. And this God is responsible for controlling the weather patterns on our planet. I said, would you believe that that religion is also true? And he began to think for a moment, and finally he began to smile, and he goes, he goes, yeah, he goes, okay, all right, he goes, I take it back. He goes, not all religions are true, only the ones that make sense. <laughs> and so notice, he backed away from his initial claim that he thought all religions could be true. Now, I want you to notice what I didn't do in that conversation. Notice I didn't tell him he was wrong. Notice I didn't tell him that religious pluralism is false. Notice I didn't even tell him I was a Christian, or even defend any aspect of my own Christian convictions. Yet I was still able to persuade him to abandon this idea that it's possible that all religions could be true. And what was the only thing I did in that entire conversation? Tell me. That's right, ask questions. Not just any random questions, but a certain line of questioning, such that as he answered the questions in his own mind, it was almost as if his own thoughts were convincing him of the idea that I want him to consider. In fact, had I said to him, Oh Raj, you believe in religious pluralism, that's false for three reasons, it's far more likely that his defenses would have gone up and he would have become more resistant to the idea that I want him to consider. But because I engaged him with questions, he was more involved in thinking through the logic behind that idea. Now this is the habit that I want to teach you to learn to get into. It's the habit I want you to implement in your lives as you go about every day engaging people of all sorts, okay? I want you to get in the habit of asking questions, all right? And so in the, what do we have, about 50 or so minutes or an hour or so for our evening tonight? In the, in the hour that I have tonight, I want to make you a promise. Now, I know we're coming up on an election uh, in November here, and I'm sure all kinds of politicians have made all sorts of promises, probably many that they won't be able to keep, okay? But, uh, but here's a promise that I think I can keep, all right? And my promise tonight is to give you a game plan that will allow you to converse with confidence in any situation, no matter how little you think you know, and no matter how articulate, educated, or aggressive the other person that you're talking to might be. So that's my promise, is to give you that game plan. Now, before we get to that, though, I want to give you some context as to where what I'm about to teach fits into our lives as Christians, now in uh, 2 Corinthians five eighteen through twenty, it's a very well known passage where Paul is talking to the Corinthian believers. He's just told them that they are a new creation; the old is gone, the new has come. And then Paul starts to share some of the, the benefits that come with being a follower of Jesus. And then he talks about oh, actually I didn't, I didn't turn to it in fact. Time here, let's see. Let me uh, expand. Talks about uh, some of the benefits that come with being a follower of Jesus. And then he comes to this passage in 2 Corinthians 5.18. He says, now all of these things are from God. All the benefits that come with being a follower of Jesus are from God who has uh, reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his appeal through you. So, Paul here uh, identifies us as ambassadors for Christ. And so at Santa Reason, where I work, we've kind of thought about that question, and we thought, well, okay, what does it mean to be an ambassador? What What are some essential skills that are necessary to be an effective ambassador? And so you can kind of think maybe about like, well, a political ambassador. And probably what you'll come to realize is if you gather all of the characteristics and qualities that are necessary for being an effective ambassador, you could probably put them to three broad categories. Knowledge, wisdom, and character. And so, in the same way that a political ambassador needs to have an accurately informed mind, an artful method, and an attractive manner, so we as ambassadors for Christ should also try to focus on having these three skills or being effective in these three areas. So, knowledge will be an accurately informed mind, right? We have to, uh, as an ambassador for Christ, know the message that God wants to communicate to the world, right? Which is the message of reconciliation, right? That's the gospel, okay? But you probably realize that simply having knowledge is not enough you can't just dump information on people you have to learn how to take that information and package it in a way that is that is persuasive that is clear that uses language that people can understand and that's where wisdom comes in an artful method but if you had knowledge and you had wisdom but you were a jerk when you spoke to people right If you are crass and harsh and condescending, well, you probably realize then your poor character would undermine your message and bring shame upon the person who you represent, which is Jesus. And so that's why character, having an attractive manner, is also a key component of being an effective ambassador, knowledgeable and character. So I say that these are three key skills that we as believers need to have as we go about proclaiming the message of reconciliation to the world. Now, what I'm talking about this evening falls under the wisdom component. So the tactic that I want to teach you tonight fits into the the component of how do you communicate? What are some tools that we can use when we're in a conversation with someone, especially someone who doesn't share our convictions? Now, to be honest, you can use this tactic with anybody, even if it's somebody that you do share your, your faith with. Uh, but uh, because we're talking about the, in the context of defending the faith, we're going to be looking at more examples where the person does not share our convictions. Now, I think there's a tremendous number of benefits of learning this approach. And the approach I'm going to be talking about, of course, is about using questions. I think if you learn to use questions effectively, it'll help you to present the truth in a very clear and clever way, kind of like the, like the way I was engaging my friend Raj, who who worked with me in in East L.A. Also, though, it'll help you to choreograph your interactions, your conversations. Now, what do I mean by that? How many here have been involved in some kind of dance? Raise your hand if you're involved in any kind of dance at some point. Yeah, a few of you have. Chances are, if you've been involved in dance, I know my wife did uh, ballet for many years, um, you know, as a ballet dancer, you probably have a choreographer, right? And a choreographer is the person who typically is not on stage, right? The choreographer is the person who's typically off stage and has in their mind precisely what they want the dancer to do on stage. And so before the dancer takes even a step on stage, the choreographer has seen exactly what's going to transpire. So for example, maybe the choreographer wants a ballet dancer to start here in the back corner, And then maybe the choreographer wants the dancer to, you know, run across the stage, you know, do a jump, right, do a twirl, and then end up like right over here. Okay, hold your applause, I know that was an (laughs) incredible, incredible skill, right? And so before any of that happens, the the choreographer's kind of seen that all take place. And I submit to you, in the same way, if you learn how to use questions effectively, you can choreograph your conversations, So think back with me to my uh, original story when I talked about my friend Raj, the Hindu. As soon as he told me he's getting married, and as soon as I realized he's a Hindu, I knew where I wanted to go in that conversation. And so I thought, how am I going to get there? I thought, okay, let me use questions to get us to that one place. So I asked one question that brought our conversation over here. Then I asked another question that brought our conversation over here. Then I asked another question that brought our conversation over here and kept doing that until we were right here and he was forced to answer the question, would you believe in a religion that teaches us gods behind the moon and controls our weather? Now I knew he would say no and I knew that would challenge his his viewpoint. And so I used questions to get us to that particular point. And that's what I mean by if you learn how to use questions, man, you can choreograph your conversations to get... The places where you want to be in order to perhaps put some pressure on people's uh, thinking. Um, also, and I think this is kind of the, the upshot of, of, of questions, they can allow you to recognize someone's mistaken thinking for the purpose of guiding them to the truth, and here's a key point, while remaining gracious and charitable. <laughs> okay, right? It's really easy to tell people, you're wrong, you're stupid, you're an idiot, you know, and be really crass and harsh, right? But remember, we're ambassadors for Christ, right? We represent Jesus. So we want to try to engage people's minds in a way that's gracious and winsome and kind. And I think using questions, as long as you don't do it like a FBI interrogator, um, then, and then you, you certainly can achieve that. Now, having said that, I realize probably some of you might be thinking, Alan, man, this sounds incredibly manipulative, like what kind of, like, you know, daddy issues do you have? You want to control people? Like, what's wrong with you, you know? And I'll admit, yes, this tactic I'm going to teach you is incredibly powerful. And as anything that's powerful, it can be abused, right? Automobiles are powerful, right? They're large, heavy machines that travel at very fast speeds. And when, uh, when used for good, then of course, they can get you from point A to point B in a, in a very quick way, Right? But when abused, they can cause injury or death. And the same way that this tactic is incredibly powerful, it can be abused. But I want you to know that this tactic is not inherently some trick or clever sophistry or some sort of like ploy, right? But yes, people can use this to belittle people, to corner people, to make them feel stupid, okay? That's not the reason why I'm trying to teach you this, right? I'm presuming that you want to be a gracious and loving ambassador for Christ who has a love for those people who are lost. And then you want to use this tool as a way to, um, to engage their minds. Okay. Okay. Having said that, let me ask you a question. When you think about sharing your faith with someone who's not a believer, say, uh, maybe it's an atheist or a Muslim or maybe an abortion choice advocate, when you think about that potential future encounter, how would you describe how you feel about that potential encounter? Would you say you're a number one? Are you the kind of person who's like, yeah, I relish the encounter. Bring it on. Where are they? I want to talk to somebody who does not share my faith. Or would you say you're a two? You're like, you know, I'm willing to share my faith, but to be honest with you, I'm nervous, I'm uncertain, and I'm scared. Or would you say you're a three, you're like, I run the other way when I think about the possibility of sharing my faith, okay? So out of curiosity, raise your hand if you're a number one. Do we have any number ones in the audience who just love and relish sharing their faith? Okay, I don't see a single hand. Okay, oh, a couple, all right. Uh, how many, raise your hand if you're number two, you're willing but nervous. Okay, it looks like a majority. Number three, you try to run the other way, okay? How many won't raise their hand no matter what I ask them? I see that hand. I appreciate that. I see that hand. I, I feel like, okay. All right. So for those of you who are a 1, which is just a few of you, you can take a nap for just 5 minutes. I want to talk to those of you who are a 2 or a 3 or who didn't raise your hand and just quickly just raise your hand and tell me what are the reasons why you're nervous, uncertain, scared or try to run the other way. What's what's the concern? Yes, over here. We don't want to upset Okay, so your fear of perhaps upsetting the person that you're talking to, obviously you're talking about religious matters that can get heated, you don't want to upset them. Totally legitimate and reasonable concern. Yes, over here. I don't want them to feel that the relationship is, is depending on whether we come to an agreement about that. Okay, so you don't, want to be, you don't want them to think that the relationship depends upon you two agreeing on this particular matter, right? So that makes you... Right, yeah, okay, so totally reasonable concern. All right, yeah, what else might be a reason, Mike? Yeah, over here. You don't want to feel stupid if you can't articulate what you want to say. Okay, yeah, so you don't want to feel stupid if you can't articulate what you want to say, right? You don't, you don't want to look foolish and be a bad representative for Christ. Sure, yeah, reasonable concern. What else might be a concern? What else are you nervous and certain or scared of? Yeah, over here. If you're being judged, that would jeopardize your relationship. Okay, if you, if you feel the other person is going to judge you, that might jeopardize your relationship with them, and... Perhaps they're a friend or a family member, right, yeah, you, you're concerned about that relationship. Totally legitimate concern. What else? Any other things you want to share about why you might be nervous, uncertain, or scared? Yes? Okay, yeah. So she was saying, So the concern is that, you know, you want to sometimes first develop a relationship with a person before you're engaging them on something more substantial. You want to show the love of Christ first, and you might not have an opportunity to do that. Okay, so that might be a concern. Good. Did you have a second one, sir? Oh, you, you'd raise your hand. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, if I know somebody beforehand has had a bad experience in mm. you know, some Christian faith, i got one guy in particular in mind that uh, I was told that he not only closed the door to the discussion, but he locked it. And happily, uh, the last time I saw him, he told me that he started watching Hillsdale College online and watched C.S. Lewis and found him very inspiring. So, so the concern was that this person already had a a bad experience with a, yeah. with a, a Christian? Yeah, okay. So now, now the door was cracked open. And sure. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Okay, yeah. So reasonable concern, but now now things are looking up, which is good. But yeah, they may have had a bad experience with the Christians, so they have these preconceived notions. Man, Christians are you know narrow minded or whatever it might be. Good. Anything else that comes to mind? A reason why? Yes. Yeah. Um, if you're not in one on one, let's say you're out to lunch with three or four colleagues, and you can't have a one on one dialogue, so just to approach that and engage. Okay, yeah, so if you're out out to lunch with three colleagues, it's not going to be a one-on-one dialogue. It's going to be one against three, perhaps. You might feel a little bit outnumbered. Yeah. Yeah, totally reasonable concern. Good. Yeah, so these are all legitimate reasons I think that would put you as a number two or a three. And by the way, when I evaluate myself for this particular question, I put myself at a number two as well. Now, keep in mind, oftentimes I'm the guy that a secular university will invite to come and speak on some controversial topic like homosexuality or abortion. And they'll say, Alan, we'll give you 20 minutes to present your sort of, whatever, pro-life view. And then after you're done with your 20 minutes, we're putting up two microphones. We're going to have people line up, and you have to debate or answer anybody who comes up to the stage. And we go back and forth for an hour and a half. Now, do I relish that encounter? No! Okay? I'm willing, but I'm nervous, uncertain, and scared. And sometimes I turn down those events. Okay? Why? Because I have exactly the same fears and concerns that you just mentioned. Right? I'm not any different than you in that sense. Right? So notice, the problem is not that we have these fears. The problem isn't that we're concerned about those things. It only becomes a problem when that paralyzes us from ever taking a step and engaging other people in conversation. And I believe if you learn this a tactic of engaging people in a certain way, it'll give you the confidence to still share your convictions even though you have those particular fears. All right. So, before I teach you this tactic then, uh, which I think is a good approach, I want to give you an example of a bad tactic or a bad approach, and I can't think of a better way to do that than to show you a video clip from the movie Nacho Libre. Um, now, now I know if, if there's youth in the audience, I'm sure. How many have seen Nacho Libre? By the way, just out of curiosity. Oh, praise the Lord! There's a lot of Christians here. That's great. Um, so, if you haven't seen Nacho Libre, I'll give you a quick rundown. Okay, Nacho Libre is about um, a character named Nacho who is a Mexican wrestler. Right? This is not Nacho. This is his wrestling partner. Nacho is currently off screen. It's played by the actor Jack Black. Now, Nacho is a Catholic Christian. Right? And so um, and, and his, his wrestling partner right here, he's not a Christian. He's just kind of like an agnostic, or atheist, or whatever. Now, they are about to wrestle these two guys who are named Satan's cavemen. <laughs> all right, And so, and, and keep in mind, this is a comedy, right? So, Nacho is thinking, wait a minute, he's got this weird idea. He's like, we cannot wrestle Satan's cavemen when my own wrestling partner is not a Christian and hasn't been baptized. And so I want you to see what tactic Nacho employs in order to convince his friend to get baptized. Let's take a look. I'm concerned, I know, about your salvation stuff. How come you're not in my ties? Because I never at to run into it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me, because I only believe in science. But tonight... Not quite the Presbyterian baptism, is it? Uh, But maybe, Pastor Ted, you might consider uh, adopting some of these elements. Yeah. So, so... Besides it not being Presbyterian, what's the problem with this approach of baptism? What's the pro- why, why is it not the way to baptize somebody? It's force. that's right. Okay, so he's forced to do it. Um, would you say his friend now is more or less likely to think getting baptized is a good idea? Less. less, exactly. Because when you're pressured or when you're forced to do something, oftentimes you just develop walls that go up, and you become more resistant to that thing that someone's trying to pressure you to do. And I think this is oftentimes a picture of how many of us who um, are so eager to see our friends, our neighbors, or our family members come to know Christ, we often come across to them like telling them a bunch of statements. Hey, you got to believe in God. Hey, you know, trust in the Bible. You know, Jesus died for your sins. You know, plead the blood, or whatever we say, but we make statement after statement after statement after statement after statement. And it comes across like we're just trying to dump their heads in the water, And this is why oftentimes the walls go up and they become more resistant to what we're saying. And that's why I'm saying we got to take a different approach. And the different approach I want to suggest to you is what we call the Columbo tactic. Now, how many have seen the TV show Columbo? Raise your hand. Wow. Yes, even more Christians. That's great. All right. So Columbo is amazing because you you watch this TV show, and uh, I know this reruns on still somewhere. And, uh, you know, Columbo, you, you watch the show, the beginning of the show begins with a crime happening. So a crime unfolds, right? You see it happening as the viewer. And then Lieutenant Columbo comes on the scene, right? And the way he comes on the scene, everybody looks at him as if this guy is completely inept and incapable of achieving his task right sometimes he comes on the scene he's wearing a trench coat it's all wrinkled people are like what did you sleep in that you know he's got bedhead you know hair sticking out the side of his head he pulls out a piece of paper to take notes at the crime scene and then he, he doesn't have a pen it's like hey anybody have a pen or a pencil you know and everyone's looking at this guy going this guy's a joke like he's going to figure out who the criminal is right but then columbo does something remarkable he starts to ask questions just calm Gracious, not at all like an FBI interrogator, right? But it's just like, hey, you know, hey, what, what are you, what are you doing here? Uh, what do you, what do you do for a living? You know, and so the guy's like, um, well, I'm an engineer, and Colum was like, oh, you're an engineer, okay, great, yeah. Uh, what do you design? Like, well, I design bridges, and Colum was like, ah, oh, you design bridges, okay, great. And everyone's like, what, what does it have to do with the investigation? Like. You know, so Columbo decides. Okay, he's gonna he's gonna leave. He's like, okay, hey, thanks for thanks for being so kind. You know, and just about when he leaves, he stops and he goes, you know, something about this thing's bothering me. You know, and he said, I got one more question, and then he got one more question, and then one more question, and and eventually he he gets enough questions asked and gets enough information answered that he's able to put together all that information and figure out who the criminal is, right? And that's the genius of Columbo. And that's why we call this the Columbo tactic. Because at its core, it's about using questions, instead of statements, to make your point and to move forward in a conversation about your faith and your convictions. Right? And as I said, you can use this tactic with anyone. Right? It doesn't have to be a non-believer. It can be with your friends, your family, your, your pastor, right? your teachers. It doesn't matter. right? Anybody. Because at the at the very core of it, it's just simply the art of asking questions, the Socratic method, if you will. We would call this class the Socratic method, but nobody would ever take it then, right? So we have to give it a different name. But, you know, secret, uh, yeah, it's just basically the Socratic method, okay? Um, now, what is the value of asking questions? Like, what do questions do for a conversation? How do they make people feel? What, what value do they provide? Okay, yeah, questions show you're interested in the other person and their ideas, absolutely. Right, what else do questions do? You have to listen to the answer? Yes, of course you have to listen to the answer, absolutely, yes. What do you say, Mark? Okay, questions are engaging, that's right. Instead of them just sitting back passively, now they're engaged because they have to contribute something to it. That's right. What else do questions do? Okay, yeah, questions give you information about the other person, about their views, absolutely. That's right. Okay, questions show that you value them because you care what they think. You want to understand them. That shows that you respect them and value them. Absolutely. That's right. What else do questions do? It takes some pressure off, it takes some pressure off of who? Of both the questioner and the person Okay, yeah, so, the, so questions can take the pressure off of, for, certainly off of you, right? Because when you ask a question, now the other person is kind of in the hot seat, if you will, and so now they're answering, and you can kind of... <sighs> Take, take a break, right? So, absolutely. And by the way, you're right. I think it. I think it does relax both people, but yeah, eventually, because yeah, you're showing that you care about them. So they're like, oh wow, this person cares about what I think. So that's absolutely true. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So when you're asking questions, you're putting yourself in a humble position, right? Because you're you're kind of like saying, hey, I want to hear from you. So you're right. That that is. I think it does create a more like equal playing field, rather than you telling a person something where you're kind of coming across more like looking down on them. Absolutely. I think that's true. Good. Anything else that comes to mind? You just don't know what the answer will be. So you're you're rolling the dice because you don't know what you're going to get as an answer. Okay. So you're saying that, so you're saying um, you're rolling the dice when you ask a question because you don't know the answer. That's true. Are you saying that's a negative? No, I can go either way. Oh, okay. It can go either way. It can go either way. Yeah. Okay. That's true. Yeah, but perhaps they will tell you something that will be revealing or, or valuable for you as, a, as your discussion progresses. Okay. Yeah. Good. Anything else that comes to mind, benefit of questions? Yes? Yeah, helps to establish a rapport. Yeah, helps to establish rapport, that's right. Typically, it's a more friendly situation. When I've been in a, um, a conversation where somebody I didn't know and we're, I'm asking questions, it's like we immediately become friends in a sense. Absolutely, even if we disagree with something. That's right. Yeah, so I think, I think you hit all the ones that... Oh, the other one I was going to say was... Yeah, go ahead. It allows the person answering to take a look at why they know what they know, or if they know why they know it. Okay, yeah. So it, it, it forces the person to uh, figure out if they have a reason for why they hold a certain view. Right? And we're going to get to that in, in specifically in a moment. And by the way... <laughs> yeah, the, she wants to answer for sure, yeah. So Questions also can sometimes allow you to be able to make your point without ever stating the details of your case, as I demonstrated in my conversation with my friend Raj, right? Um, we also know that Jesus was a master at asking questions, right? Uh, there's a, you know, Paul Weston did a thing where he counted all the questions that are documented in the Gospels, right? The total of 284, right? Is Jesus asking a lot of questions because he doesn't know a lot of things? No. I mean, he, he knows the rhetorical power of engaging people using questions, and that's why he uses so many questions to engage people when he's having conversations with them. Um, I love what Francis Schaeffer says. Um, you know, Schaefer was uh, an apologist. He was also just, he was a philosopher, brilliant mind, and also just one of those people who was really good at sitting down with somebody and just listening to them and, and, and loving them and caring for them. And people always felt uh, very much cared for by, by Francis Schaefer. But listen to what he says about um, how he incorporates questions in his conversation. He says this, If I have only an hour with someone, I will spend the first 55 minutes asking them questions and finding out what is troubling their heart and their mind, and then the last five minutes I will share something of the truth. Wow, that's pretty incredible, right? You know, I bet a lot of us would think if we had a a Muslim neighbor, for example, and we gave them 55 minutes out of the hour to share something about their religion, about their values, about what they do at the mosque or whatever— and we only took five minutes at the very end to share something about Christianity or about Jesus, I bet a lot of us would be tempted to think, oh man, we blew it, we we wasted our opportunity. Or maybe you have a friend who identifies as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender, and you give them 55 minutes out of the hour to, to share about their life, to tell their story, to talk about what it was like growing up, and maybe they grew up in the church, and maybe they experienced certain things, and you only spend five minutes sharing something of the truth? at the very end, I bet a lot of us might be tempted to think, oh man, we blew it, we squandered opportunity, right? We wasted wasted an opportunity to to do something. But Schaefer says, no, by all means, that we should take that time to ask them questions, to find out what is going on deep inside their soul, so that when we do share something in those last five minutes, that something that we share will be exactly what they needed to hear. And we'll know what they needed to hear because we first invested in them and asked them many important questions to find out where they are at. So that's the power of questions. Now, there are two specific questions uh, that each have their own application that I want you to learn. Okay, So these are two Columbo questions. Here is the first kind of Columbo question, all right? The purpose of this first Columbo question, by the way, is to help you to gain information. It's to tell you what a person believes. And here's the key question. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Notice, very simple question. Anyone here can ask this question, right? What do you mean by that? Now, I personally memorize those exact words, you don't have to. Any question, really, that asks the person, what do you believe, or tell me more about that, or define that term you just used, any one of those will work, right? But I, I just love to memorize it that way. It just rolls off my tongue very, very easily. In fact, I've already used, the, I've already used this in conversations today. I've said to people, yeah, what do you mean by that? You know? So it's just, it's just a part of my, of my language, right? So think about it. Somebody might say to me, Alan, um, you know, all religions are basically the same. Now, I'm not an expert in world religions, but I have studied world religions enough to know that they are not all the same, right? And perhaps you know that's the case as well. But when someone says this to me when I'm in a conversation, my response is not to go off on a five or ten minute explanation as to why this sentence is false. Instead, my first response is to ask the Columbo question. And I'll just simply ask them, Hey, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by they're all the same? Now think about it for a moment. You don't know what they mean by the same. Maybe by same they mean all religions believe in the same God. Or maybe by same they mean all religions have the same moral uh, standpoints. Or maybe by the same they mean all religions have the same sort of methodology of getting into heaven. So you don't know which one of those views they're referring to when they say the statement. And so when you ask them the Columbo question, hey, what do you mean by that? they'll tell you which one of those they are referring to or something else, and then you'll better understand their view so you can respond to what they actually believe and are saying. Here's an example. The Bible isn't reliable. You know? If you talk to a Muslim, they'll definitely teach say this. Uh, of course, skeptics and atheists love to say this as well. Um, but when somebody says the Bible isn't reliable, I could probably go off the top of my head on a 10-minute, like, mm-hmm like a uh, presentation about why the Bible is reliable. I mean, I, I've taught on it that many times, I could do it without, without even looking at notes, okay? But I don't do that. When someone says to me, the Bible isn't reliable, my first question is to ask the Columbo question. What do you mean by that? Okay. Notice, by the way, that's an easier response than trying to refute it, okay? But I'm going to ask, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by reliable? Now again, I submit to you that you don't know what they mean by just that sentence, Maybe by reliable they mean the Bible isn't a reliable source of history. Or maybe the Bible isn't reliable when it speaks to scientific matters. Or maybe they mean the Bible hasn't been reliably transmitted such that what the biblical authors wrote thousands of years ago is what we have in our Bibles today, which is more an issue of transmission. Right? And so when you ask them, well, what do you mean by reliable? They'll tell you which one of those they're referring to and then you'll understand exactly what their view is. You'll have gained information, and then you can respond if, if you want. Right? Uh, people say, I'm pro-choice. Okay? Again, we might be tempted to think, oh, well, if somebody says that, it's obvious what they believe. But is it? I I've, I've talk to abortion choice advocates all over the country, and I tell you, when someone says they're pro-choice, it does not automatically mean that they are in favor of abortion throughout all nine months of pregnancy. Sometimes they'll say, no, I'm only in favor of abortion if it's um, you know, for these reasons but not these reasons, or if it's for birth control, then I'm against it, or I'm only for abortion in the first trimester, or whatever. They have all kinds of nuanced views. And so when someone says this to me, again, my first response is to ask, the Columbo question. Hmm, what do you mean by pro-choice? Yeah, tell me more about that, you know, so that you can understand their views and so you're not talking like this but you're being able to engage them in what they actually believe. Uh, a lot of people believe in evolution and they'll say, evolution's a well-proven fact. Now again, I could, I could, if somebody says this, I could probably spend 20 minutes just talking about evolution, what I think about it and why I think it's mistaken or whatever. But I don't. I make my job a hundred times easier by first asking the Columbo question, what do you mean by evolution? Because how many different definitions of evolution are there? There's a lot. So suppose you say to them, hey, um, what do you mean by evolution? And they say, well, by evolution I mean change over time. Okay. Well, if all they mean by evolution is change over time, then you probably realize, well, everything evolves according to that definition, right? Your hairdo evolves, right? Cities evolve, right? If you're a student, your GPA evolves, hopefully up and not down, right? I mean, everything evolves, everything changes over time. So notice, if that's what they mean by evolution, can a Christian in good faith accept that sentence as true? If all they mean by evolution is change over time, can can we as Christians accept that sentence? Yeah. Because all this thing is, change over time is a well-proven fact. Well, yeah, of course. Now, obviously they can mean something else. Um, in Charles Darwin's book, the, On the Origin of Species, the first five chapters of that book, Charles Darwin explains what he calls the special theory of evolution, which many people today refer to it as microevolution. And this is simply the ability of species to adapt to their environment, and to make small, small changes. So, for example, um, how many have ever had to take antibiotics because they were sick? Raise your hand if you've ever had to take antibiotics. Does anybody remember what rule the doctor tells you you must follow if you take antibiotics? Yeah, finish the entire course, right? The reason they tell you that is because if you take antibiotics to kill the bacteria that's making you sick, and you start to feel better, and you say, okay, well, hey, I don't have to take the rest of the antibiotics because I I feel better. What's happened is, you still have some bacteria that were making you sick that's still in your body, but not enough to give you any symptoms. And so when you stop taking the antibiotics, that bacteria adapts, it changes, it develops a resistance to the antibiotic, then it continues to multiply and grow, it makes you sick again, and now the antibiotics will not work any longer. Now, people will say that is an evolutionary change and they're referring to microevolution or the special theory of evolution, right? Where where we see that some species, like bacteria, have the ability to adapt to their environment. Now, if that's all they mean when they say evolution is a well-proven fact, they're talking about microevolution like that. Can we as Christians say, oh, well yes, that sentence would be true then. Well, he could, right? Because we all, we all agree that, that that happens. okay? But now, after Charles Darwin explained the special theory of evolution in the first five chapters, the remaining part of his book, which is why the book became so controversial, is he, uh, is he argued for the general theory of evolution, which many people refer to as macroevolution. And this is the idea that at some point in the history of the Earth, nothing was alive. There's just, you know, water, you know, Mountains and dirt, right? And somehow, the story goes, the first living thing came to life. They think it was actually maybe a bacterial cell. And from that one bacterial cell, eventually that mutated and changed. and We had plants and animals and lions and tigers and, and redwoods and sequoias and you know arachnids and all kinds of things, you know, dinosaurs and whatever. That is a macroevolutionary story. So if you ask the colloquial question, hey, what do you mean by evolution? And they give you that definition... Well, now you might say, okay, yeah, I have a problem with that. I don't think that sentence is true, right? But I want you to notice something. You cannot respond to that statement, evolution is a well-proven fact, until you first understand what they mean by evolution. Because several of the definitions you would wholeheartedly agree to, right? But if you just hear them say evolution is a well-proven fact, and you're like, no, it's not, it's false. And in their mind, they're thinking of microevolution, like bacteria adapting to antibiotics, they'll think you're crazy. They'll be like, "Wait, what are you talking about? Like, don't you believe that you should take antibiotics the full course?" You know, so that's why this Columbo question is so key. It helps you to make sure that you understand what they're saying, so that you can respond appropriately. And there's, you know, I can give you, I mean, a million examples, stem cell research, there's adult stem cell research, there's embryonic stem cell research. Some kills an innocent human being, some does not. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that you really need to say, hey, what do you mean by stem cell research, okay? So this column question would apply to a whole host of topics. Now, the point is, is that you want to ask this question because, number one, it shows interest in their beliefs, Right? Also, notice this question buys you valuable time. If you're in a conversation and someone presents something like the Bible isn't reliable, and you're like, "Oh man, I'm not sure what to say," okay, so you ask the Columbo question, "Hey, uh, what do you mean by reliable?" Now they're going to spend maybe a minute or five minutes answering that question, and guess what? You can do. (sighs) Catch your breath, collect your thoughts pause for a moment, you know. Maybe they'll say something in that minute where they're answering a question that'll trigger your memory. Oh, I remember learning something about that or whatever, or you'll, you'll figure out a way to respond, you know. So it buys you valuable time, right? It gives you more material to work with because they're now answering the question. But ultimately, it tells you what they believe so that, number one, you don't misunderstand them, and number two, so you don't misrepresent them. And that is a big blunder. I mean, it's an embarrassing blunder if you um, take what they believe and instead of representing accurately, you misrepresent what they believe in such a way where now their view looks more stupid and foolish and easier to attack, and then you attack that view that they don't actually hold. Does anybody know what that mistake is called in logic? Yes, it's called a straw man fallacy. Straw man fallacy. And uh, the reason it's called a straw man fallacy is because it's believed, or it's known, that it's a lot easier to attack and knock down a man that is made out of straw than it would be to attack and knock down a man that is made out of flesh and blood, right? Like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. right? Notice, this is a mischaracterization of a real person. And given the option, hey, which one do you want to try to knock down? Obviously, you're going to want to knock down this one, right? But this is exactly what's happening if you don't ask the Columbo question and you misrepresent a person's view because you don't understand it in such a way where their view looks a lot easier and more foolish to attack. And then you attack that. And they're like, wait, you just attacked a view I don't hold. Like, do you want to have a conversation with me? Or do you want to just misrepresent what I'm saying and attack that, (laughs) you know? So it looks very foolish. So that's the first question, the first Columbo question. What do you mean by that? It tells you what they believe. But there's a second key Columbo question. And the second Columbo question tells you why they believe what they believe. It tells you what their reasons are for why they hold what they hold. Right? <clears throat> and um, what it will also help you to do in just a moment, you'll see, is perhaps the most important thing I'm going to teach you tonight, which is to reverse the burden of proof. Okay, but before we get to that, we have to unpack first what an argument is. Can anyone here tell me the definition of an argument? And I'm looking for two key components to this definition. Can anyone tell me what an argument is? Yes, father of, of many debates. Many a collection of premises, the which is true. Okay, so a collection of premises, yeah, it's true, but maybe it's less technical jargon. How would you, if you're presenting an argument, what are you, what are you trying to do? What, what's, what's necessary in that argument? Yes? Assertions like conclusions. Okay, so assertions, yes, and conclusion. So, um, so yes, you need to have an assertion. An assertion would be your claim, your belief, what, whatever you think is true. Okay. But merely having a claim, or your opinion, is not enough for it to be an argument. You need something else to turn that claim into an argument. And does anybody know what that other thing is? I know you've, you're kind of touched, yes? Okay, you don't need a differing opinion that if you had two people, each has their own claim, that's true, but you don't actually need another person to have an argument. You need your claim with something else. What turns that claim into an argument? Yes? Evidence, Evidence, that's right. So evidence or reason. So an argument is simply your position, your claim, with evidence or reasons to back it up. right? So, when my wife picks me up from the airport and I'm flying, you know, I've, I've gotten home from a trip and we're driving back to the, you know, driving back to Escondido from San Diego International and she says to me, hey, uh, do you want to get something to eat on the way home? And I'm like, sure, let's, let's go to, let's say I say, let's go to Taco Bell, okay? <laughs> now, she's, so, so my wife's like kind of a health nut, right? So she's going to say, why would we go to Taco Bell, right? Now, notice I've expressed my claim. We should go to Taco Bell. What she's asking for is a reason to back it up. Why would we do that? Now, suppose I whip out a coupon. Two tacos for a dollar right here, okay? Well, I say, well, because we, we have a coupon. Let me save some money. Now, I've given a reason to back it up, right? So, now I've presented an argument, right? Or suppose you're going to paint the family room, and you and your spouse or whoever's talking about it, and you're like, well, what color should we paint it? Let's paint it blue. Why should we paint it blue? You say, oh, because it's going to help match the couch or the couch will look better or stand up. Okay, you just presented an argument. You you have a claim, we should paint the room blue. Why? Because it'll help make the couch look better. So notice, there's nothing argumentative about an argument. I mean, it could it could evolve into an argumentative thing, but an argument is simply your point of view with evidence or reasons to back it up. Okay? If you just have a point of view, that is not an argument. Right? Now, I like to use the analogy of a house to illustrate an argument. Right? A house, notice, has um, a roof, but a roof on the ground is not uh, a house. Right, don't, don't buy such a property. Right? You want to have walls that hold up the roof. And so the roof is your claim or your belief or your opinion, and then you have evidence or reasons to hold up that roof. Okay? So this is critical that you understand what an argument is. If you just present an opinion or a claim, that's not an argument. Unless you provide evidence or reasons, then you've turned your claim into an argument. Okay? Now, let's get into the burden of proof question. Okay? What is the burden of proof? Can anyone give me a definition for the burden of proof? And former lawyers are not allowed to answer. Okay. But it is, a, it is kind of a term that's used in the legal setting. Does anybody know what the burden of proof is? It does involve evidence. It's true. Yes? Enough evidence to persuade someone. Okay, enough evidence to persuade someone. Uh, well, yeah, you do, you do need evidence to persuade someone of something. But it's, it's something else. There's something else involved in the burden of proof. Yes? Yes, the responsibility. That's exactly right. So um, you're all kind of like hovering over it. Yeah. The burden of proof is the responsibility that someone has to give evidence or reasons for their view. And the way the burden of proof rule works is this. Whoever makes a claim, it's their job to bear the burden of proof. Right? Whoever offers their opinion... It's their job to provide evidence to show why that opinion is true. It's not the other person's responsibility to counter that opinion, right? So, I mean, this is generally how our, our, you know, legal setting, our legal thing works, right? So, if I, um, so my friend Greg King sitting there, if I was to accuse Greg King of stealing my car, like Greg, you stole my car. He's like, no, I didn't. I'm like, yes, you did. You stole my car. He's like, dude, you have a 2008. You know, Honda CRV, why would I steal your car? It's like 200,000 miles. Oh, you know, you stole my car. So we go back and forth. Eventually, we end up in court. And I'm claiming he stole my car. Now, who is the one who bears the burden of proof? Who is the one who's responsible for presenting evidence first? Me or Greg? Me. Because I'm the one who made the claim. I'm the one who made the accusation. I'm responsible for presenting evidence for, for my case. Now, suppose I provide zero evidence. Does Greg have to say anything in that court setting? No. He walks out of that court completely free and innocent. Because I never made an argument. I just presented my my um, my opinion, but I never gave evidence. But say I pull out my phone and I'm like, okay, here's my ring camera up, and I have a video footage of him breaking into my garage, stealing my car, and driving off with it. Okay? So now I've turned my claim, my opinion, into an argument because I presented evidence, and so Greg would, now Greg would have to respond. No, that's my twin brother. You don't have a twin brother. Yes, I, whatever. You know. But notice the burden of proof is a responsibility that the person who makes the claim. It's their job to provide evidence for the view. It's not the other person's responsibility to refute it. Just if you present, uh, just if you make a, um, a claim. Okay. Now, having said this, I want to point out the, most, the number one mistake Christians make when they engage non-Christians. And it's written down in your notes there, it says, no more free rides. Okay, No more free rides. Because here's what happens. Suppose a Christian's talking to a non-Christian. And the non-Christian says, oh, well, all religions are basically the same, or give some statement. Okay? Now, the non-Christians made a claim. Is that an argument, or is it just a claim, if they say all religions are basically the same? Yeah, it's just an opinion, okay? So who bears the burden of proof, the non-Christian or the Christian? The non-Christian, right? They've made the claim, it's their job to back it up, but here's the mistake that virtually every Christian I hear make. When we take Christians, we train them, we go out and to do evangelism, here's what happens. The non-Christian says, oh no, 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 they're not. All religions are not the same. Because you see, in Christianity, Jesus is the son of God. In Islam, he's not the son of God, he's just a prophet. And in um, Judaism, he's not the son of God or a prophet, so you see, they can't be all the same, because all the... And the Christian goes off for five minutes trying to refute someone's opinion. They're not refuting someone's argument, just refuting someone's opinion, their claim. This is what I call giving a person a free ride. You are taking on the burden when the burden does not belong to you and you're making your task a hundred times harder than it needs to be. Brothers and sisters, listen to me very carefully. If someone presents an opinion or a claim and they have not given evidence for it, it is not your job to try to refute it or show why they're mistaken. It's their job to provide evidence and reasons why that claim is true. But if you go around life thinking that I have to respond to every claim anyone makes, you will never want to share your faith because it's an impossible burden to bear to expect that you can respond to every claim out there. If I went around life thinking, oh, I have to respond to every claim, every opinion someone offers, I too would never want to share my faith because who who can bear that burden? Instead, If they offer a claim, make them shoulder the burden of proof. And the way to do that is to have Columbo help you out. And here is the second key Columbo question. How did you come to that conclusion? Now again, I like to memorize that. You don't have to, but I encourage you to memorize something. Any question that asks them, why should I believe what you just said? Or, 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 what, why should I think what you think? Or just plain why. <laughs> okay. But how do you come to that conclusion is the key, key question. Again, I encourage you to memorize it. It's so easy. Anyone can say this. They offer you a claim. Ask, how did you come to that conclusion? Right? So, for example, someone says the Bible has been translated and retranslated so many times you can't possibly know that what the biblical authors wrote is what we have in our Bibles today. Okay? Is that a claim or an argument? To claim. Are people allowed to believe that? Sure, they're allowed to believe that, but do not treat it as an argument. That is just a roof on the ground, okay? So, if someone says that, my response, again, now I could, again, I've studied this a little bit, so I'd be like, oh, well, I could respond and give like a five-minute refutation of that claim, but that would be giving them a free ride. And so instead, I asked the Columbo question, hey, um, Interesting claim, interesting opinion. Thank you for sharing that. Hey, how did you come to that conclusion? And then wait and listen for an answer. People say to me, Alan, you know, Jesus, he taught reincarnation after he traveled to India. Now, I'm not a historian. Maybe Maybe you're not a historian. Maybe you're not a Jesus scholar, Jesus expert, okay? It's okay. You don't have to be. They're the ones who just made a claim. It's their job to back it up, right? So the response to this would be, Hey, how did, how did you come to that conclusion? And then wait and see if they can provide walls to the roof they just offered you that was on the ground. Right? Do not take on the burden of proof. Both of those are just claims. Again, people are allowed to believe in them, but don't mistake them for an argument. Lawrence Krauss, Stephen Hawking, and many others will say, Oh, you know, the universe just came into existence by itself. Really? Interesting claim. Hey, how did you come to that conclusion? Because a lot of people parrot back what they hear these guys say. All religions are basically the same. How did you come to that conclusion? The Bible is full of fables and myths. How did you come to that conclusion? Every living thing came from a single cell life form. How did you come to that conclusion? Science has proven the Bible wrong. How did you come to that conclusion? Notice, every single one of these statements is just an opinion. It's just a claim. It's a roof on the ground. Again, people are allowed to believe it. Just don't treat it like if, an ar- like if it's an argument. Don't take on the burden of proof and try to refute it. Make them shoulder the burden of proof. After all, they're the ones who've made the claim. They're the ones who should bear the burden of proof. Okay? And this question, how did you come to that conclusion, has all the benefits of the previous question and all the benefits of questions in general. Right? It shows interest in their view It buys you valuable time. It gives you more material to work with. And here's the key. It assumes that they have reasons for their view and they're not just emoting or just asserting. But listen to me carefully. Do not be surprised if you ask them, how did you come to that conclusion? And they give you a blank stare. (laughs) I'm not kidding. People say, oh, the Bible's been translated and retranslated so many times you can't possibly know that what it says... And I'll say to them, "Oh, interesting claim. Hey, how did you come to that conclusion?" And they say, um, "Well, I, uh, gosh, I, uh, shoot. Um, well, I, I was reading this this meme on Facebook, and uh, what did you say? I, just there was this meme on Facebook, and I, 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 you're like. So you just believe memes from Facebook and the internet? Like you believe what you read on the internet?" Well, you know, and the reason why they're caught off guard is this, they're used to Christians giving them a free ride. They're used to taking some ridiculous and wild claim, throwing it out there, and then having the Christian freak out, oh my gosh, how am I going to respond to this? I don't know how to deal with it. And they're just sitting back laughing. (laughs) I just threw out some ridiculous claim that has no grounding whatsoever in reality, and I'm just watching the Christian squirm. They're used to Christians giving them a free ride, so that's why when you ask them, hey, how did you come to that conclusion? They're like, oh, um, wait, you're asking me, I mean, I'm saying this out loud, I'm not saying this, but they're like, oh, they're, you're asking me to defend my view? This claim I just made up? Yes, that's what we're doing. Because <laughs> that's the reasonable, justified, and gracious thing, right? This is not a trick. You know if you say to an atheist, hey, God is real and he loves you. You know what they're going to say? Prove it. And what they mean by prove it is, how did you come to that conclusion? What's your evidence? You just gave me a roof on the ground, show me the walls. And so that's all we're doing. We're just, we're just doing the gracious, logical thing. Hey, interesting opinion, thank you for sharing that. Hey, I'd love to know, what's your reasoning behind that? And then wait for an answer. Okay? So ultimately, this question, how did you come to that conclusion, is just putting, reversing the burden of proof back on them where the burden often belongs. Right, So here's a number of questions I've heard recently on university campuses and elsewhere. So take this first sentence here. All wars have been started by religion. Is that a claim or is that an argument? It's a claim. Should you respond to it by giving a 5 or 10 minute refutation of that claim? No, because if you did, what would you be giving them? A free ride. That's right, it's a mistake. So what question could you ask that reverses the burden of proof and makes them shoulder the burden? Yes, what makes you think that? Or how did you come to that conclusion? Exactly. All right, here's another sentence. Uh, The theory of evolution explains the way all species emerged. Is that a claim or is that an argument? It's a claim. Should you respond to that claim with a 10-minute explanation as to why you think it's mistaken? No, because that would be giving them a free ride, right? So what question could you ask that shifts the burden of proof back on them? What gave that idea? <laughs> yeah, what gave you that idea? Okay, yeah, or? What do you mean by evolution? Well, yeah, you could say, what do you mean by evolution? That is a good question, because that would tell you what they meant by evolution. But since we're practicing the second Columbo question, <laughs> who we'll let this guy in? <laughs> um, yeah, so the question would be, how did you come to that conclusion, okay? Yeah. All right, uh, so God can't exist if evil and suffering exists. Again, claim or argument? It's a claim, right? What question could you ask to reverse the burden of proof? Why not? Why not? Well, why not, yeah. Or, or how did you come to that conclusion, right? Do you see a pattern here? Um, Muhammad was a prophet of God. How did you come to that conclusion? It's right. The Bible's been corrupted. That's right. All of these are simply claims. Again, there's nothing wrong with people believing them. People can believe them, it's fine. I'm not saying people should not believe them. All I'm saying is, do not treat these sentences as if they're arguments. Don't try to respond to them and try to explain why they're mistaken. Otherwise, you're giving them a free ride. You're just taking on the burden when the burden doesn't belong to you. Now, Here's the thing, if you ask the question, how did you come to that conclusion, it's possible that they might respond with what I call the professor's ploy. Now this happens oftentimes in a university setting, but it also happens on a one-on-one setting, Okay, but I'll describe what it's like in a university setting. So you're at a a university, secular or Christian, doesn't matter, (laughs) Um, at least today it doesn't matter, but um, the professor, let's say he's teaching on, I don't know, uh, American history, and he's going off for a few weeks on American history, then all of a sudden, one day in class, he just stops talking about American history, and he starts bashing the Bible. The Bible's full of fables and myths! And everyone's like, what in the world? Like, I thought we were learning history. Why is this guy going off on the Bible? Now, sometimes there's a Christian in that, in that lecture hall, maybe in the back, raises his hand, the professor says, yes, sir, you have a question. And the student says, yeah, professor, you just made a claim that the Bible's full of fables and myths. Do you have any evidence to back that up? How did you come to that conclusion? So notice what the student's doing. He's using the Columbo tactic appropriately, right? The professor made a claim, not an argument, just a claim, and so the student's just simply asking, what's your evidence to back that up? But now the professor is very smart, and he's had many Christian students come through his class for decades, and here's how he responds. Young man, thank you for sharing that question. I totally appreciate it. Hey, listen, I'm an open-minded kind of guy. I'm not here to impose my views on everybody else. I'm willing to consider other people's views as well. So, young man, go ahead and feel free now to share with us why you think the Bible is trustworthy and true. Now, what has the professor just done? Yeah, he just put the burden of proof back on the student. Is that where the burden belongs? No, right? So he's, this is the professor's ploy. And so if you were in that situation as a student, you should be like, well, wait a minute, professor. You're the one who made the claim, right? You're the, you're the teacher. We're the students. We're here to learn from you. Like, do you have any evidence to back up your view? Or should we just take everything you say on faith? No, don't say that. That's kind of... <laughs> that's the cocky allen getting out, out of control, okay? No, but so, and this might happen in a, in a regular conversation. You know, you're meeting with, uh, you know, you're going for Thanksgiving dinner coming up here, right? And, you know, Uncle Bob's there. And Uncle Bob's, you know, not Christian, Uncle Bob comes to you and you're like, "All religions are basically the same." And you're like, "Uncle Bob, um, how did you come to that conclusion?" And Uncle Bob says, "Oh, so you think Christianity's true? Prove it." So Uncle Bob just did the professor's ploy, right? He made a claim, all religions are basically the same. You asked him, "How did you come to that conclusion?" And instead of answering that with providing walls to his, 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 house, uh, to his roof, he put the burden proof back on you by just somebody saying, well, prove Christianity is true. And you're like, wait a minute, I never made that claim. You're the one who first made the claim. So that's why I say you've got to be mindful of that. Okay? Now suppose, though, you ask, how did you come to that conclusion? And they answer. They say, oh, thank you for asking. Here's my evidence. And they turn their claim into an argument. They provide walls to their roof. They've now turned it into a house. So they, they, they provide a legitimate argument. Then and only then should you feel any um, uh, should should you feel it's okay to then respond to that argument if you know how to respond. Okay, so if you know how to respond, they've made an argument. Go ahead and feel free to respond to the argument. But what if you don't know how to respond? You know, I, I remember uh, I was <laughs> I was at a, um, a wedding and I was talking to somebody I didn't know, and we were talking about evolution, and, and I said to her, "I said, how did you come to that conclusion?" She said, well, I just graduated from Harvard University with a Ph.D. in paleontology. I was studying under Stephen J. Gould, who's one of the leading paleontologists in the world. And let me tell you, and she gave me an answer. I'm like, oh, okay. So that might happen. I mean, it may not be that kind of a dramatic thing, but they might present to you now an argument, and you don't know how to respond. So here's how I address a situation when they've presented an argument, and I don't know how to respond. Here's what I do or I don't know how to respond to the argument. First thing I do is I acknowledge their point. I say, hey, thanks for telling me that argument. I've never heard that before. I appreciate it. Thanks for sharing that. That's very cool. I've learned something today. Then I ask them, can I get back to them? I say, "Hey, you know what? Can I think about that for a couple days and get back to you? Like maybe Uncle Bob presented some great argument and you're going to see him again in early December, you know? Or maybe you're in class and you're going to see that student three days later, you know? Can I I think about that and get back to you? I've never had anybody say to me, no, you need to respond right now. It's like, everyone's like, sure, go ahead and think about my amazing argument, you know? Then I go home and I do some research. I, you know, maybe go to a website like, like our website, str.org. Woo! Um, no, but seriously, actually, our website, str.org, we have a ton of free articles, podcasts, YouTube videos, answering questions and challenges of all sorts, okay? This is what we do. And there's literally thousands of pages and articles and videos and whatever. So check out that, or, or maybe um, coldcasechristianity.com, which you were referring to, uh, J. Warner Wallace, who's a friend of mine, he is a former cold case homicide detective, and, uh, he was an atheist. Then he took his homicide detective skills and applied them to the Gospels and to the resurrection and discovered that actually they, there's good reason to trust that it actually happened. And he became a Christian. And now he speaks all over the world. Um, and his website's called coldcasechristianity.com. And he's got a ton of free resources, again, also, um, you know, that could probably answer a lot of questions. Uh, reasonablefaith.org is the website of William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig is probably one of the top Christian philosophers um, in the country, if not the world. He's probably one of the top Christian debaters in the world. Like this guy goes to any country, like South Africa, debates the top atheist in South Africa and wins. He goes to Germany, debates the top atheist in Germany and wins. Um, Richard Dawkins, one of the most famous atheists in the world, he's a British evolutionist refuses to debate William Lane Craig because he knew he would get slaughtered Right? there are forums on the internet by atheists that only talk about how do we defeat William Lane Craig how come all of our top atheists always lose when William Lane Craig just presents the same arguments for God's existence all the time in every debate and yet nobody seems to be able to address them. Anyway, so he's got a website called reasonablefaith.org and if you are come across an argument and you're like, wow, this is scientifically or philosophically tough, you might find, again, free resources there. Okay? The point is, is that after I ask if I can get back to them, I go and do my research, right? figure out the answer, go to this website, maybe call Pastor Ted, you know, usually he likes to answer questions around 2 to 3 a.m. when you're doing your quiet time, so feel free to give him a a text recall at that moment, right? Anyways, you get your answer, and then you go back to them, and when you see Uncle Bob, or you see your classmates, say, hey, you know, I was thinking about what you said that one time, and it occurred to me that, and then you give your response. Okay? So notice, you don't have to have the answer right then, right there. Just say, hey, good, good, good argument, interesting. Can I think about that? Go home, get your answer, come back. By the way, if you keep doing this, Every time you're confronted with a challenge or an argument that you don't know how to respond to, you know what's going to happen after a year or two? You're going to give yourself an incredible education. Amen. And what you'll discover is the same objections are raised over and over and over again by multiple people. And one day you'll be engaging someone and they'll bring up an argument and you'll say, i got to think about, oh, wait, no, actually, I know how to respond right now. Because you've seen it come across your... your um, conversations many times in the past. Okay? So that's how I deal with a situation where I don't know how to respond to a particular argument. So, notice we have two key questions. Two Columbo questions. What do you mean by that? And how did you come to that conclusion? Right? The first question tells you what a person believes. The second question tells you why they believe it. This is your game plan. Remember at the beginning I said, I promise to give you a game plan that will allow you to converse with confidence in any situation, no matter how little you think you know about the topic, and no matter how articulate, educated, or aggressive the other person you're talking to might be. Right? Here's your game plan. Two key questions. You can use this in any situation. Trust me, I've, I've done it. Imagine you're getting on an airplane and you're like, I'm going to fly from San Diego to, I don't know, Boston. And you're like, you know what, i got five hours on this flight, I'm going to grab my Bible, I'm going to start reading my Bible on the airplane, and and maybe the person sitting next to me will see me reading the Bible, and that will be an opportunity to have a conversation, right? Because you know what happens on an airplane, right? You've, You've been on an airplane, everybody who sits on an airplane, you sit in there and if someone's got a laptop or a book that's open next to you, what do you do? You're like... You look with your eyes, right? You don't turn your head because that's too obvious that you're staring, right? But you do that thing with your eyes, like, "Mm, oh, (laughs) no. And so you're kind of just like, right? You're checking it out. Well, guess what? Everybody does that to you as well, right? So if you open up your Bible, you know they're going to be like, oh, that's right. I'm looking at you, right? So the plane starts to taxi, right? Starts heading to the runway. And you're like, okay, I'm going to make my move, right? So So you whip out the Bible, right? Start reading and you notice the person sitting next to you starts to do that thing. And you're like, oh, you're like, I got a live one. (laughs) Yeah, you're all excited, you know. So you're like, okay, I'm going to make my move. So the plane takes off, and you finally get up the guts to turn to them and say, hey, I notice you're checking out what I'm reading here. I go, can I tell you about Jesus Christ, who I'm reading about in these Gospels? And as you're saying that, you realize the person sitting next to you is Richard Dawkins, the most famous atheist on the planet. And you're like, oh my, I'm going to die. And my response to you is, no, you're not, because you know who's got your back? Jesus. Well, yes, Jesus, but <laughs> Colombo, yes. colombo has got your back, right? Just go into Colombo fact-finding mode. Hey, Professor Dawkins, tell me more about that. Oh, interesting. Hey, what do you mean by that? Oh, I see. Hey, how did you come to that conclusion? Oh, okay, very interesting. You can just Columbo him to death, okay? And you'll be good. By the time the plane lands, Dawkins will be running down the jetway, you know, get me out of here. So you can use this with anybody, right? This is your game plan. All right, a couple of things before we close. Uh, A few points here. Um, Some final thoughts. A lot of people um, who I know who worked in the military in some way often tell me, Alan, the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in battle. The idea is the more you practice with your friends in a you know non-hostile situation with you know rubber bullets or whatever they do, you know the less likely you are to get shot in the battlefield and bleed for real, right? Because you practice in a safe situation with your friends and stuff like that, you're you're going to be more equipped and handle it in the real situation. And I would say to you, this is exactly what happens also with tactics. Practice. What do you mean by that? And how did you come to that conclusion? With your friends, with your family, in a safe situation where you're not, you know, pressured, and that way you learn it and you develop muscle memory. And so, when you're in a more hostile situation, those words will flow off your tongue much more easily. Okay, that's what I mean by the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in battle. Second thing, and I just hold off on judging me before you, <laughs> before I explain this. I know this sounds kind of like anti-Christian, okay? But listen to what I'm talking about here. Don't feel compelled to present the gospel in every conversation. Now, here's what I mean by that. I think a lot of us, um, growing up in the evangelical world, feel this pressure that if we're talking to someone who's not a believer, you know, you're with your neighbor, you're talking about the shrubs, you know, between your houses. It's like, oh wait, they're not a Christian. I have to bring up the gospel. And so what happens is you feel that pressure, and then if you don't do it, you feel guilty, or, what happens is, because you feel that pressure, you try to force the gospel in a conversation where it just feels completely unnatural and bizarre. You know, you're talking to somebody, maybe you he, he got a new truck, and you're like, hey man, I noticed you got a new truck. And your friend's like, yeah man, you like it? You're like, yeah, yeah, it's a cool truck, I noticed you got a, a Ford, not a Chevy, what's with that? They're like, well, uh, you know, I, I like Ford, I like the, the body shape of the Fords, and plus I think they have a better uh, resale value, so... I, I decided to, you know, I chose to buy a Ford. And you're like, oh, okay, I can see why you chose to buy a Ford. Why don't you also choose to follow Jesus Christ? And they're like, whoa, like, where'd that come from? Like, you're just talking about Fords and Chevys and now you're talking about Jesus? Like, what? Like, like, don't be that guy or gal that tries to, like, shoehorn the gospel into every conversation, okay? Look, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying don't present the gospel. Yeah, of course, we're ambassadors for Christ. We're called to proclaim the message of reconciliation. God gives you the opportunity. By all means, take it. I'm just saying don't force it in a situation where it's awkward and people are like, what in the world are you doing? And instead, so instead of trying to feel compelled to present the gospel in every conversation, instead make this your goal. Make it your goal to put a stone in your shoe. You know when you get yeah, a stone in your shoe, yeah. when you get a stone in your shoe, every time you walk, you can't stop thinking about that stone that keeps poking you in the sole of your foot, right? And in the same way, try to use the Columbo tactic or those Columbo questions to engage their mind, to provoke them to think about things, such that you put a stone in their shoe or a stone in their soul that maybe the Holy Spirit can then use to provoke or poke them and keep them thinking. Okay? That's what I mean by that. And I'll close with this. Um, Mother Teresa has a book called Love, a Fruit That's Always in Season. And in it, she says this thing that I kind of I like. She says, God's not called me to be successful. He's called me to be faithful. Listen, it's not our job to convince people of our arguments or to make people Christians, right? We're not called to be successful. In that sense. We're simply called to be faithful, to present the truth, in a persuasive and clear way, and then we leave the results up to God. Right? Don't be committed to the end result. Be committed to your part that you're responsible for, being an ambassador for Jesus, having knowledge, wisdom, and character, and presenting the message of reconciliation. And then let God handle the results. Okay? So that's what I mean by uh, try to think of how you can be uh, faithful. Uh, don't worry about the success. Leave that up to God. Okay, um, by the way, is that, say, 8 o'clock? Is that what that means? Okay, are we out of time? Okay, so before you go, um, this is a, this piece of propaganda, I mean, uh, this informational um, flyer that was handed out, if you can pull this out real quick, I want to tell you what this is. In fact, wave it like this at me so I can see you have it, and plus it'll cool me down a little bit, because these lights are really hot. So uh, you'll notice it's perforated, and I want you to fold it in half where it's perforated and pull apart the two pieces, okay? I want you to take notice though, of the side that has the rounded corners, okay? On one side, it says the Columbo tactic, all right? So the Columbo tactic, remember, this is what we just learned, right? And on it, you see three questions. We only covered the first two, but there's three questions on here. This is an outline, a quick reminder of um, the Columbo tactic. This is something you can put in your back pocket, your purse, your backpack, your wallet, your... Man bag. I don't know what guys carry these days. Your purse. Is that what it is? Your satchel. Whatever. This is for you to keep, okay, and uh, for you to remember some of the good Columbia questions. Now, the card that has the right angled corners. This card's for me. Now, on one side, it says "Solid Ground," and uh, this is an opportunity for you, if you're interested, to get more training of the kind that I've talked about today. So at Stand to Reason, where I work, my boss, Greg Kokel, who wrote the book, Tactics, um, every two months, we mail out a training article on some timely apologetics-related question. Like, Is hell eternal conscious torment or are we annihilated? What are some causes for same-sex attraction? Should we use the preferred pronouns of the people who identify as trans? These are the kinds of timely questions that we address in Solid Ground. And every two months, we mail it out to whoever wants to get it. If you're interested in getting that for free, all you got to do is tell us where you live, okay? So that's on the other side. So there's a place to fill out your name, your address, or if you don't prefer a paper training article mailed to you, then just include your email address and just put down, Alan, send me the uh, digital version or the email version. And then I'll be sure to send you the email version, uh, digital version. But if you don't say that, we're going to send you the paper version if you give us um, your address. So before you leave, just come up and hand this to me wherever I'm standing. If I'm talking to somebody, it's okay. Just hand it to me and I'll take it and I'll get you signed up for that free training. Thank you very much.